There's a joyful song, a joyful tune as well to us this morning. We come now to the time of our service to the preaching of God's Word. If you would turn with me, if you would like to follow along in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. There's also Bibles in the racks in front of you. Uh, It should be around page 980. Uh, And There's also a table of contents in the front of your Bible if you'd like to find it there as well. But Philippians chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. Let me pray for us as we begin to read and preach from God's Word this morning. Father in heaven, we come before you, the God who gives wisdom to those who are foolish. The book of James tells us that you give wisdom to all without finding fault who come and ask to ask of you. And Father, we come to you and ask that you would give us wisdom from your word. The wisdom that gives us the knowledge of salvation of our souls. The wisdom that instructs us in the way that we should walk in our lives before you. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to see wondrous things out of your law today. Do this by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, we will read verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it to us this morning. It's fitting that we come in this time of year to this passage. I didn't plan it this way when I picked the book of Philippians, but in God's providence, we are here at this text that speaks of Christ's preexistence as God from all eternity, of his incarnation becoming a man, and then his work of salvation in dying upon a cross for our sins, and then his ascension into heaven. It is a summary of the whole of Christ's work for us in just a few verses this morning. So I would like for us to take a look at this passage over the coming weeks in this time of year as we delve into what Paul presents to us about the work of our Savior for us and what it has and what it means for us. But I wonder... 
as we begin to delve into this, it makes me think of a situation in life that many of us have had, where you have been to a beautiful place. Maybe you've driven hours out of your way or gotten on an airplane and flown across the country or even to other countries to visit somewhere that people go and they take photographs and it's things that they put on their walls or they share with all their friends because they say, look where I get to go right now. So have you ever visited a beautiful place in your life? Somewhere that when you step outside, you smell the air and you look around you and you don't have the words to describe what it's like to be there. One place that my family, my wife and I and our kids have gone over the years is to a national park in Oregon called Crater Lake National Park. And it's a beautiful place in southern Oregon, a unique place that's an old blown-up volcano, a caldera that has collapsed on itself, and inside is this pristine alpine mountain lake at the bottom of this old broken-down volcano. And we would drive on the freeways 14 hours to go up to Oregon for vacation. And you drive quickly on the freeway, you know, like many of us, driving the speed limit. And we won't bring up those of you who do otherwise, you know, driving slower than the speed limit. But we would not take our time to get there. But once you get there, you slow down, right? You take your time as you drive around these areas to see the scenery. And as you drive up this mountain into... Crater Lake, it's, you go up about 3,000 feet of elevation. That's almost four or five times higher than anything that's here in the state of Wisconsin. And so you can see for miles, hundreds of miles in every direction once you get to the top. You can see all the way down into California, the mountain peaks of northern California, and all the way up into southern Washington, the mountain peaks up there. It's a stunning sight. And once you get to the top of this mountain, and you look out and you can see hundreds of miles in either direction, it begins to get barren as you approach the top of the tree line. And you look down on the other side of this mountain, and at the bottom is this brilliant blue lake that is still and flat. And it is like a big giant circle. It's this stunning thing of green forest and brown dirt around you, and this brilliant, bright blue lake that laid out, that is laid out before you. And you take your time, that's what we would do, we would take our time to drive around this lake and look at everything that was there. And the whole time you're stunned by the beauty of it. And this is a time in our lives where we know these things, where we take time to go experience these things, and we slow down and we look at them in detail. We look at the trees, we look at the different mountain peaks that are around, the water that is crystal clear, some of the clearest water on this planet. Well, that is what I'd like us to approach this text as this morning, that we are going to slow down over these coming weeks to look at these six or seven verses, because this is like a mountaintop in Scripture. All of Scripture is given to us for instruction, but there are some places in Scripture where there is so much packed in, so much beauty that's given to us, that it's good for us to slow down as we look at this text over these next few weeks. So what does this text have to tell us? What does this text have to say to us this morning? Well, I think it's simply put that we are called to imitate the way that Jesus thinks. 
what verse 5 tells us. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind. Think this way. He had earlier been telling these believers to do nothing from rivalry or empty empty conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Behind that word to count or consider others is this word think. And so throughout this section, Paul is telling the believers and God through his apostle is telling us today that this is how we're supposed to think. That we're supposed to think like Jesus. Now, as Christians, we already know this. This is something that we understand, that we ought to think like Jesus. But this is what our call is today, is to be reminded is to imitate the way that Jesus thinks. I'd like to look at this in three different ways this morning. The call to imitate, this call that we have this morning, then I want us to look at the form of God that's laid out for us here, and then we were going to look at the Son's thoughts, the Son of God, the thoughts of him, that He has of Himself. So first, we have the call to imitate. Many of you are familiar with the bracelets, What Would Jesus Do? WWJD. This is something that many Christians have done as a way to remind them to think like Jesus. What would Jesus do in this situation? There's bracelets, I've seen bumper stickers, I've seen t-shirts that say WWJD. Maybe you have seen these, maybe you wear them. Maybe you're wearing one right now as a way to remind you to think like Jesus. But is that the most important question that we should ask ourselves? What What would Jesus do? If Jesus were in my situation, what would he do? Is that the best question that we can ask? It's a good question. But is that the best question that we can ask? I'd like to propose to us in a moment a different question. I think a more fundamental question that we need to be asking that this text is calling us to. The implication, though, here is that we don't often imitate Jesus' thinking. You don't tell somebody to imitate somebody if they already are, do you? If somebody is already thinking and doing the right thing, you don't need to remind them because they're already doing it. If your kid is cleaning their room every morning, no child, I think, does that. That would be an amazing feat. But let's just say, hypothetically, kids, you cleaned your room every morning. And your parents came to you and said, hey, go clean your room. And you would say, why are you telling me to go clean my room? I already do this every day. It would be redundant or almost offensive in a way. But the reason we say, go clean your room, kids, is because we don't. And the reason Paul here is telling us to have the same mind in ourselves is because in ourselves we don't think like Jesus naturally. This is not something that comes to us naturally. And here God has given to us in this this passage the way to help us to think like Jesus. Ultimately, Paul is trying to get the church to be unified together. He's trying to promote unity within the church, and the way to be unified together as Christians is to think like Jesus. And last week we looked at our call to unity, and today we're going to look at our call to imitation. But there is a danger here. And maybe it's already coming into your mind. You've heard this phrase, to imitate Jesus, to be like Jesus. 
There's great portions of Christianity throughout history and even modern times that that is all that they think of Jesus. He is merely someone that we need to imitate. We are called to imitate Jesus, to live like him, to behave like him. But that's all that they see Jesus as. Somebody who we need to just model our lives after. And they define Jesus as a savior, as somebody who, he lived a good life, he lived the right life, but he saves us by showing us the way that we're supposed to live. So that we can save ourselves from all the difficulties in life if we just live like Jesus. Jesus is a mere example to these people and nothing more. That is not the only thing that I want us to hear this this morning. That Jesus is just an example to us. He is, but he is much more than that. Jesus is our Savior, who he himself saves us from our sin. And that is where we begin before we ever do anything to imitate our Savior in what we do. But what I want us to see is the way that we think about ourselves towards other Christians in particular needs to mirror the way that Jesus thought about himself towards us. There are lots of good examples in this world of sacrifice. I love watching war movies because these are men often and oftentimes even women who have given their lives for the sake of others in selfless ways of sacrifice. But if that's all we need is just a picture of self-sacrifice, why do we need Jesus? That's not what's presented here to us this morning. There's something utterly unique that Jesus does that's different from every other form of self-sacrifice that has happened in this world. And what Jesus does here is he sets a unique pattern for us today. See, the most important question that we can ask is not, What would Jesus do? As good and as helpful as that question can be to ask ourselves. The most important question that we can ask is, what did Jesus do? What did he do? And we cannot do what Jesus did. We cannot save people or ourselves from our sin. We can't do that. So there is limits to our ability to imitate Jesus. But, as Paul sets out here, we can adopt the same frame of mind that Jesus had. The same way of thinking as we live our lives. We may not accomplish the same things as Jesus. We are incapable of doing that. But we are capable of adopting a same mindset that Jesus had. So where does Paul begin as he wants to tell us about how we adopt the same frame of mind that Jesus does? Well, this is our second point this morning. The form of God. Where Paul takes us is to reflect upon who the Son of God is. Who Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate, before he took human flesh, before he became a man, who was he and how did he think before he became a man? And Paul begins with one of the clearest statements in all of Scripture about the divinity of Jesus Christ. Although he existed in the form of God. Although he existed in the form of God. There are several things that this passage teaches us. First, is that the Son of God has been God from all eternity. 
forever. This is something that our brains cannot wrap themselves around. It is a mystery that Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of Trinity, has been and always been God himself. And we here even see hints and understandings of the Trinity, that there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons who are one God and have been God forever. There was no beginning to the Son of God. There was no beginning to the Father, and there was no beginning to the Holy Spirit. The Son of God has existed in the form of God. This verb is a present tense verb. And for all you English, uh, English majors, the three of you that may be present in this building, that this is a verb that is ongoing continuous, that he has always existed in the form of God. One person, always God. We are not talking here about a person who was created at a point in time. Not some person that God created that he would then later send to save people in this world. No, this is the Son of God always having been God. That we are dealing here with the eternal, uncreated, Self-existing Son of God. Nothing else brought him into existence. He has existed from himself. But the second thing we learn from this passage is that he was in the form of God. What does it mean for the Son to be in the form of God? What is the form of God? That's a strange phrase. What is God's form? We might look at that passage and think, well, Scripture teaches us that we can't see God. So how can he have a form? So I think what's helpful for us is to understand what is a form? What is a form for us? This word in the Greek language, the way they use it, is defined in many Greek dictionaries as an outward appearance or shape. And that's readily apparent to us. It's a shape, or it's an outward appearance, a visible appearance, as one commentator calls it. But it's difficult because of what Scripture tells us about God. This is from 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. It says, God, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, But we must understand that God makes himself visible in a way. When he makes himself known, he makes known his glory. And we see this all throughout Scripture. That while we cannot see God as he is in himself, his glory is revealed to us, around us. That is his outward appearance in a very true way. It is his glory. And glory is the garment with which God clothes himself. It's his outward appearance. It is how God reveals himself to this world. Listen to how Romans chapter 1 says this. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This is all humanity here. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. 
See, Romans chapter 1 tells all of us that God has revealed himself and he has shown his glory in all that he has made. That all creation shows forth the glory of God. Psalm 19 speaks that the heavens declare the glory of God. That it is shining his glory all around us. And we, his creatures, should know that he exists and that he is amazing and glorious from everything that's around us. But what has mankind done with the glory that we do see that tells us about who God is and what he's like? We have given it up. We have tried to create our own forms of glory. As it says that they exchange the glory of the immortal, invisible God for images resembling creatures and man. But this is what this passage is telling us about the Son of God, that His garment, His clothing is glory. It is like when you enter into the presence of a king, which I don't think any of us have ever done. But when you enter into that presence, it is glorious, and it shines forth. So this is the form of God. And it is important for us when we, as we understand this passage going forward for the form that Jesus then will take to himself later. But the third thing we see here about this form of God that we're instructed is that it means that he is equal with God. The logic here is that if you share God's form, then you share in his essence. And if you share in God's essence, then you are God himself. And this is utterly unique from all creatures. See, as creatures, we can share a form and a likeness to other things. Children, you share the form and likeness of your parents. You are made up of 50% of your mom and 50% of your dad. 23 chromosomes from your parent, with your dad, and 23 chromosomes from your mom. Scientists, you can correct me later if I got the numbers right or wrong, but forgive me. But the thing is, you are not your mom and your dad. You are a unique person, a unique individual. You have your own form. Your parents have their own form. And you are not equal with them in one sense. Two things combine to make you who you are. But you're unique. There is no one on this planet like you. This is to everybody. You are unique. There's nobody else like you in this whole creation. Now, God is unique. But the way that God shares his form and essence is not any way like it is with creatures. The Son of God shares the same glory as God. And he can't just be a part of God. You cannot share that form, that glory, and be just a part of God. Or a lesser God. He must be truly and completely God himself as he shares that form. He is either God himself or he is not God at all. We are not left with any other choice. But the key for us this morning, as Paul lays out how we are to understand who the Son of God is, that will later come and take human form to himself, what did he do? Remember this question. What did Jesus do? 
Or how did he think? This is our third point this morning. The Son of God's thoughts. How did the Son of God think? What filled his mind? See, this is why we need our minds transformed. We need not to be just told what to do, as important that is, as that is, We don't just need a list of rules for our lives that say, here's how you live your life. Here's the right and wrong things. Here is the law. Don't murder, don't steal. We need something more. We need a way of thinking. And now here Paul dives into, delves into the Son of God's thoughts. As if the curtain is being pulled back for us and we actually get to see how God Thinks. And this is how God thinks. Existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Although he was God, although he had the form of glory, clothed in glory in his person, and he was equal, he is equal with God, this is not something he thought about to hold on to for himself. A thing to be grasped. The one who is clothed with glory, perfectly blessed, whose majesty is infinite and eternal, who is rich beyond all comparison. How did he think of himself? He did not grasp it. This means that he did not see existing in glory as something to be used for his own advantage. This was not something that he saw, I'm going to use for my own self. I'm going to take advantage of this for myself. And this is the essence of what we must understand about our Savior, about who God is in himself and how he thinks His glory, his riches, are not something that he holds on to himself to use for his own benefit. Instead, the way that God thinks is to make others rich. To pour out himself. 2 Corinthians, he who was rich became poor. So that we, by his poverty, We who are poor, by his poverty, might become rich. See, the thing that Paul is confronting with the Philippians, and we are being confronted with today, is our own desire to vaunt and exalt ourselves. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, selfish ambition, vain glory. Why do you do do nothing from that? Because that is not the way that God behaves himself. That is not the way that God thinks about himself. The Son of God did not use his infinite treasure of glory to exalt himself. He did not view himself as someone for others to look out for and to make others look at him to say, look how great I am. Even though there is a sense in which that's true, but he does not do that at the cost of others. This is so much how we approach it in life. 
We exalt ourselves so often at the cost of others. But what does Jesus do? He did not regard himself. He wasn't thinking about himself. He was thinking about us. He was thinking about us. He was thinking about how he could use his riches to profit us. He was thinking about us who have no glory, who have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling man and animals and all kinds of things in creation. Who no longer have any glory, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus saw this. And he said, that is where I'm going to pour my effort into. He did not use his riches to profit himself, but to profit us. And this is the very beginning of what Jesus does. This is the way that God thinks. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. See, that call comes to us as Christians because we have a Savior who has regarded us as more important than Himself. And we have no clearer picture of this and truth of this than Jesus dying on a cross. He did not regard Himself even to the point of dying for us, giving His very life for our sake. And that is what you and I need to hear. That we have a God who does not harbor riches to Himself to enrich Himself, but He gives it away. Not only does He give it away, but He gives it away to those who do not deserve it. Who have made themselves undeserving of His goodness and His glory. And that is who we need to look upon today. Our God, who thinks about others before himself. Who gives himself to others at the cost of himself. That is the clothing that we need to gird ourselves with. And we need to look ourselves to Jesus Christ as our Savior. As the one who has given himself up for our sake. So this morning, that is my call to you to imitate this mind of Christ. But more than that, to know that Christ doesn't just have a mind like this, but this is what He has actually done for you. That He has stooped down from heaven to lift you up to bring you to glory with Him. And He has done it freely and without anything that you have done to earn it or deserve. So remember that above all this morning, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we are those who are undeserving of your grace towards us that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, it is an unfathomable thing to us that you are a God who thinks this way. It is so unlike the way that we think. It is so unlike the way that this world thinks, who want to enrich themselves 
and do it at the cost of others. Oh Lord, I pray that you would fill our hearts with the knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and the riches that he has poured out upon us in himself, that he has given his own life for our sake. Raise our thoughts to heaven now, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.